Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Right. Sounds great. Hope you watched, listened, and read Linda's uh, Sabbath school lesson last week. Her insights into the six angels' messages was phenomenal. I hope if you didn't know that it's a, please know that it's available at comeandreason.com. Thanks to Dean and his team, everybody that's involved in making this happen so that it's available both video, audio, podcast. Uh, the notes are all available. This makes it available for those of us who are so hungry to learn all across the world. So we're really grateful. And we're also grateful to Tim and Christy, who are currently traveling right now. Their commitment to this ministry, giving of themselves to write and teach and travel far and wide to share the really, really good news about God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. What is the deal with all this rain? (laughs) I read on the last day, actually on the first day of March, looking back at February, we had broken 11.2 inches of rain in the month of February alone. Unless you don't know what the normal stats are for February, that that is 6.4 inches above the previous record. So like we're talking a lot of rain. Yesterday, too, then we had eight more hours of rain, and today we have sunshine, and I won't mention that tomorrow's forecast is for more rain. And while I'm grateful for the filling of the water table, because that means I don't have to be out the dog days of summer watering my lawn, um, more importantly, my trees, actually, I want to remember those who've been adversely affected by flooding, by mudslides, as a result of this rain. Rain also makes me think of the power of water to change geography. The most common thing we think about is erosion, you know, starting in the rocks, carving through through with erosion, breaking down, ultimately to getting larger and larger to where we actually create great gorges around rivers, large rivers. And I kind of think about that time that it takes or the effort or the power that water has to take these little etches in the rock and then ultimately over time to create larger and larger bodies of water. Considering that with the mind and ideas, how long does it take for new evidence to etch through this geography in our minds? Well, while the well-worn traditional ways of looking things have already you know, created these great gorges that it's just so easy to travel down the, the old traditional, maybe uh, more well-worn ways, but we're working in our class here I believe so, in Sabbath school preparation. Um, This floods our mind with new ideas, new evidences, so that we can actually take these seemingly tiny little puddles and then create new established grooves in our minds. The remedy is another way that I find to kind of read, see the for, see the landscape or the waterscape, so to speak, with with kind of the dots connected or the the the, the fill it, filled in details, so that we can kind of see. Oh yeah, we kind of talked about it being kind of the answer key or the it, it's kind of laid out for us, and it helps us again with that process of creating new new uh, ways of the information to groove in our brain. I also am looking forward to, some of us have talked this morning about upcoming, I don't have details, but just to stay tuned for a session occurring probably early next year, teaching the teachers, teaching us to, equipping us to be able to teach and speak uh, about this good news and the good news about God, and not a minute too soon. In the meantime, I'd also like to share something that I did this week. Uh, Eve, one of our classmates, um, and I 
talked about studying together this week, and because time and uh, space, even in the same community, is challenging, um, we did something, and Eve had it all set up. She started a template of her Sabbath school study, and then she would make it available to me through a cloud, and I could make my notes. I didn't figure out how to actually comment back within without disturbing her document, but I know that they do this in corporations all the time, but think about it. We can do this for our Sabbath school study to share again, to make sure we're all um, feeling vital and, and connected. Someone might say, you know, when it comes to Sabbath school prep or for tackling Revelation, why not just read one author? And be done with it. Just just present those ideas. Why not just do, uh, you know, it's so much simpler. I think, yeah, absolutely. Simpler, easier, certainly less time consuming than what I've attempted to do. But I'd say that not being a theologian by any stretch, but instead a seeking believer trying to make sense of revelation, I owe it to myself, I owe it to God, and I owe it to you to read widely and to tr- at least try to distill the information down to manageable bites. This quarter we have, in this Bible study guide, two of the, the two foremost Adventist theologians on the subject of Revelation, represented both in the, the core text and the teacher's notes. Um, as I mentioned, we, have, we can channel Tim through the reading of the remedy. For alternative views, um, I will include some links in the notes to some articles that I found. One, Dave Larson is a professor of religion out at Loma Linda University Health, and uh, he shared that there's a a, a bevy of new theologians or new theologians with new ideas, new perspectives that are are writing as well, and and Sigvat Tonstad is one of the doc. He's an MD, PhD, and I somehow am drawn to these theologian people who also have training as physicians. Maybe it's because we think alike, but um, and I'll provide links to these authors. With this in mind, I'd like to introduce the concept of differential diagnosis in medicine. There may be more than one possible explanation for any given set of symptoms. For example, cough. Cough is a symptom usually one of several, with which a patient presents. And while most likely representing some form of an upper respiratory tract infection, is it viral? Is it bacterial? Is it pneumonia? Or is it simply a cold? Is there an underlying condition that could predispose the patient to complications? On the other hand, is it possible that these symptoms represent reflux, GERD you might have heard of, so not even anything to do with the respiratory tract, or even the side effect of a medication that the person's taking. Nowadays, anyone can Google differential diagnosis of cough and come up with the percentages of likelihood of any given symptom, symptom representing one condition or another, like I did. Uh, I think this is how patients think that medicine is done Dr. Google, I have patients come in many times with uh, Dr. Google's diagnosis of their condition. But not back in the 80s when I trained. I see today's docs, they all have how they carry this in their pocket, I don't know. How this $1,000 piece of equipment is walking around the hospital, everybody just seems to have one. And they are fonts of knowledge of the most obscure diagnoses. How practical this is, I don't know. Because only rarely is a single symptom present in isolation. For example, our patient with a cough. Is there accompanying fever and chills, nausea, vomiting? Is there post-nasal drip? Is there sputum production? 
You can see how quickly one would need multiple Google searches, all able to correlate and integrate the information from the others in order to rule in or rule out particular options for the single diagnosis of the patient's condition. And I don't know what medical education is like today, but in my, my day, we spent years honing our abilities to discern which details of the patient's history and physical were pertinent. Differential diagnosis is the task of finding the most persuasive explanation for all the findings and symptoms in a given patient. Wiki defines differential diagnosis as, quote, the process of weighing the probability of one disease versus that of others, possibly accounting for the patient's illness. So I ask, why, why does one's diagnosis matter? I'll answer my own question to start with, to say because it changes the treatment. The physician or provider's diagnosis, their judgment matters in how they recommend and implement treatment for the patient towards healing and restoration of health. You can't arrive at the correct treatment plan until you have the correct diagnosis. Applying these concepts to spiritual matters, now I'll ask you, how has God's judgment been defined by those adhering to penal substitution. The definition of God's judgment. I have our handy dandy uh, on the website, um, among other things, one of the resources is uh, biblical keywords comparing definitions. Way back when, um, Tim and I, I actually, I'd started working on this, and Tim and the team have expanded upon it. And I, it's really a wonderful document because, once again, going back to the ways we have thought about it and trying to recreate uh, new pathways in our brains. On this document, under the imposed law construct, uh, Tim has judgment of judgment by God or judgment, yeah, God's judgment as being defined as legal, uh, finding le- oh, sorry legal finding. A legal finding and determination of imposed punishment for breaking of arbitrary rules. Does that sound familiar? Now, I'm going to ask, how would we, with this new perspective on things, how would we define God's judgment? Anybody feel more comfortable talking about that? What I understand now is just to turn away. It allows you to make your own decision. So turning away, Dale? For me, one of the most important texts of the Bible when we think about judgment is what Jesus said in John 3, and I believe it's verse 20. He said, this is the judgment. He goes on to say, but the dark hates the light. If we forget that, if we don't have that perspective on judgment, I think we, we miss everything. I love this idea, the richness that our pasts bring or our professions in my world I'm leading, leaning towards the medical side of things. I love the concept of the, God's judgment being his diagnosis of things, the, the diagnosis of the condition of the heart, along with his therapeutic intervention to heal and to save, his pronouncement of the natural result of the condition of the heart and mind, <laughs> and these three different facets based on how, of course, the judgment of God is, is being used. But God's judgment is not the only judgment discussed in Scripture. Isaiah 1.18, our class's motto, Come, let us reason together. In Romans 3.4, God must be true, even though all humans be li- human beings be liars. 
as the scripture says, you must be shown to be right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. Here the remedy describes it as, God, may you be proved right and true in the hearts and minds of your intelligent creatures when you present yourself openly for their judgment. We need to be judging. We need to be discerning. So I ask you, what about your differential diagnosis? What's your judgment of the available evidence? We are invited to weigh all the evidence in the case of God's trustworthiness, of his righteousness, all the various motivations ascribed to God in the stories revealed in the Bible, the ways in which he designed the universe to function, and the degree to which he manifests and abides with his own law of love. Your assessment of him, your diagnosis of his character, will define the way that you become. For we know we will become like that which we worship and admire. The way you treat others, and ultimately, uh, sorry, and ultimately, whether your heart has the law of love written upon it, and you love others more than self. Other-centered giving, service, and love results in the maturing and perfecting of character, the healing of the mind and body. In differential diagnosis, not all evidence is equal. Not all diagnoses are equal. And in the spiritual realm, the same. While each thoughtful person's diagnosis of God's character may deserve thoughtful consideration, one must ultimately arrive at a diagnosis of God, his characters, his character, his methods, and his judgments. Now turning to our study of Revelation and the awful, the awful plagues. I'd like to start with something that I shared uh, one of the Sabbath school uh, videos this quarter with a friend, and she said, if I could have heard what Tim said in the first three minutes when he reviewed these provisos, she's eternally indebted to hear that. And I'd like to review those for us today. First off, Revelation is highly symbolic. If one part of the passage is symbolic or metaphor, then the rest is symbolic or metaphor, unless clear reasons to be literal are expressed in the text. The Bible will be used to interpret itself, i.e., symbol interpretations will use Bible definitions before other definitions. Two, the general theme is that of the conflict between Christ and Satan. Third, no interpretation should be accepted that represents God in a character different than Jesus revealed, or which has God violating his design laws of love and liberty. Do I need to say that again? No interpretation should be accepted that represents God in a character different than Jesus revealed, or which has God violating his design laws of love and liberty. All this being said, we may still come to different conclusions about what the symbols mean. We do not have to interpret every detail of the symbols correctly to be saved. Salvation is found in Jesus, trusting him, opening the heart, and being reborn by being reborn by the indwelling spirit. Saved people can disagree on technical points of interpretation. It's okay. So let's listen to each other and possibly learn something that we need to integrate into our diagnosis. And ultimately you'll find that I ask the question, what does this perspective say about God? Is it in keeping with what I know to be true through scripture? I love our integrative method through scripture, through uh, design law and science and through life experience overlapping to reveal harmonized truth and that's truth of the capital T. So starting with Sabbath afternoon can we turn to Revelation 15 1 through 4 and I'm going to ask someone to read if they wouldn't mind. 
um, while you're looking that up. A challenge of Revelation is that it must all be taken in context. This is a book named Reveal, Open, Apocalypse, open our eyes to see what's going on, to pull back the curtain, even though it's using strange to us imagery and symbols to depict its, the events. You can't pick up the study of the plagues, for example, without seeing its setting in the chapter pr- just prior, or without recognizing the familiarity of things like the recurring sevens or the recurring thirds, uh, particularly in the trumpets previously. So, this being said, does someone want to read? Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4. Eve? I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So we have a setting for these upcoming plagues in the throne room, in the heavenly council. And this should be familiar. We saw this in the seals. We saw it in the trumpets. Uh, Seals in Revelation 4 and 5. The trumpets in Revelation 8. Um, going through um, uh, in verse 1, uh, another revelation is about to begin. It describes the last plagues. Might this be in contrast to the trumpet plagues? Maybe those are considered the first plagues. Um, I don't know, but it does refer to uh, the wrath of God is finished. So we have, we're coming to the end of some process. And let's review the wrath of God. Can we kind of have, I think we had some discussion earlier about the judgment of God. How do we define the wrath of God in particular? We talked about a lot. And I'd like to uh, amplify that by saying, yes, letting go, giving permission to loose the restraints. But it also involves revelation, the exposing of the adversary for who he is. We'll see that kind of come up again, too. Verse 2 has the sea of glass. Sound familiar? At the foot of the throne room, again, in that heavenly council. Uh, Also, verse uh, 2, in that same section, it talks about the harps of God, and that harkens ahead to Revelation 14. So this is just such a grand victory celebration for and by those who had won the war. The singing, the Echoing the the cacophony of what seemed to be going on back in uh, I think it's Revelation four or five when the seals are being opened, uh, just the the ch- choirs, the chanting uh, described in the heavenly council after the Lamb stepped up to open the seals, hymns that speak primarily to the kind of person God is. In fact, we have it several listed: your deeds, your ways, your name, and your judgments have been revealed. The Song of Moses, which is alluded to. If we can review the Moses story, Moses was kept from entering the promised land after striking the rock when God had told him to speak to it. He was God's representative, and by striking the rock, he misrepresented God's character and his methods. Moses admits to his failure, and in his song, he gets it right. But this song is sung by both Moses and the Lamb. What a seal of approval. And this is sung in concert with Jesus. So kind of to sum this up, God is active. This is happening in his throne. 
in his heavenly council, his angels, he is directing the releasing, the actions of the adversary, even actively letting go. But at the same time, God is revealing, revealing the nature of the adversary and allowing, allowing him to show himself for who and what he is. Going on to verses 5 through 8, we continue the heavenly context for the giving of the seven last plagues. Does someone want to read verse 8 in particular? And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So it's important to notice that no one is in the temple in heaven when, the, when these last plagues fall. Previously, the throne room in heaven was full of millions upon millions of heavenly beings. Might this mean or lead us to believe that the events connected to the seven last plagues will take place after the close of probation? This week, I kind of, I wasn't raised like indoctrinated in Adventism, so this idea of what the close of probation, do other faiths talk about the close of probation? Do we, do we, is no? That is a uniquely Adventist thing. So can someone maybe expound upon what they understand the close of probation to be? I used to consider it an arbitrary date and time when God's goals have been met. Uh, my thinking has changed since coming to this class. It's now the point in time where every human being has made a choice, they've made up their mind to accept truth, embrace truth, and allow truth and love to change their heart, modify for the better, or the people who rejected truth and therefore only left, the only thing left now is to believe a lie. So when humanity is as self-separated into those two groups, that's when the, the Holy Spirit's work is done. The Holy Spirit cannot reveal any more light to those who believe because they already believe. They're settled into the truth. Any more light revealed to those who don't believe is a waste of time and energy. Probation is Probation is a time of choosing, and when the time of choosing is ended, everybody's made a choice. I grew up believing something slightly different, and I only offer it. I don't believe it now, but I would offer it to just to expand the ideas. I was taught that in 1844, God started a process, and that essentially God is limited, like we are, temporarily limited somehow, which I obviously don't believe that, but that's kind of what what I grew up thinking that, well, he started through the record, and it's like, you know, do this, do the next one, the next one, and, well, when he came up to modern time, then what's he going to do? Well, he still has to, you know, his agenda has to go this direction, so, well, probation is over, you know? It's kind of an arbitrary idea, and one that puts temporal limits on God, okay. which, to me, completely contradicts Romans 8.1, which says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen. Does anyone have any insight to affirm the idea that the close of probation has already happened prior to the seven last plagues? And while you're considering that, why would that matter? So one, have do we have evidence to support, as this quarterly alludes, that the close... I certainly am not fit at this point to... Oppose that, but and then secondly, why would it matter, James? Does a person's probation close when they die? So everybody that's dead 
Has their probation closed? Uh, just a question. Have you thought that before? Have you have you considered that? I've thought that once I die, I don't have the ability to make a choice. Donna? Well, if that was true, and I'm not disagreeing necessarily, but, you know, the concept uh, when the dead are raised, okay, for that final, you know, when the holy city comes down, the gates are open, devil is getting his troops ready, <laughs> okay, to take the city. But the, the why why does he leave the, the gates open, okay, so that it could show the safe, okay, that they still have a choice, but they're so settled into it that they're not going to choose to come in, but to show that there's still a choice, okay, as long as there's life. Life even after death is what you're saying, because yeah, that when they raise back up, okay, they're raised up with the same character, the same whatever, okay, and it will show that God isn't excluding anybody, okay, that people have a choice. What about, you know, some of the people, let's say, that were uh, lost in the flood? We talked about children, the flood, yeah. You know, um, you know, they, you know, they see... Um, if I could introduce kind of a strange thought. I, I was raised in the Adventist Church. I, I've heard seminar after seminar talking about the close of probation. But reading it this week was the first time that I had ever seen the phrase in that verse that says that the temple, you know, that says the temple was filled with smoke, the glory of God filled it. Until the seven plagues, nobody could enter until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And that made me wonder, is part of the purpose of the seven plagues, when, you, when God is letting go, to demonstrate the adversary and perhaps eventually change the minds? I don't know. But I did note, and I thought it was very cool, that the reason nobody else enters the temple is because God is in it. Um, and, and if you look back in Israel's time, when God entered the temple, not even the priests would go in. So the, the ministry ended, and if you look at it as a metaphor or a symbol, and God's temple is his people, then perhaps God stops working for us because we're so filled with him that we can't be moved, we can't be shaken. We're That's already beautiful. filled with the truth and with his character. To answer my own question about why would it even matter, I think it does matter about this closer probation and whether or not the closer probation is, as we say, a final thing or is there another iteration to become? I don't know. Uh, because it says to me that those who believe that the catastrophes wrought in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven plagues are from the hand of God as punitive judgment, as covenant curses, another phrase used, um, these, these, uh, on the unbelieving or the unrepentant, then these plagues would then be falling on permanently deaf ears. So to what end? Punishment? Retribution? Are we getting back at them because of what they did to the saints? What does that say about God? Yes. I'm not mistaken, but when the plagues fell in Egypt, didn't some of the Egyptians come to some of the Hebrews after the plagues fell because they actually accepted their ways? Well, that's, that's what I see. I got another thought. The, I think the concept of the close of, the, and I don't think the word probation is in Revelation, but you know it says, "Let the let the holy be holy still, and the unholy be unholy still." What, 
whatever that text is says exactly. Um, do we have to view that as God making an arbitrary uh, dictation that that you know will be the case, or is it the opposite? Is it God saying natural consequences have led to this, and He's just declaring what already exists? Right, declaring getting His diagnosis it's a, it's on, water, totally on the way things are. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, going back from memory, it's funny, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but whether I was taught this, the understanding that I received from my growth up in the um, Southern Adventist Church was that, that there is a time where, like kind of Russell said, you know, when the time comes, only the Father knows that time, and when He stands up, you know, it, your decision has been made for you. And not necessarily that I made that decision, but um, that the decision was made, and then then the seven last plagues would last for, I think we thought, three and a half years, or the remainder part of three and a half years of Daniel. And then, um, and then during that time period would be the time of trouble, where we would actually wrestle with our, with our thoughts and, and, and convictions while Jesus was no longer the intercessor for us before the Father. So therefore, we had to either be right or wrong at that time period. Um, to answer your question, you said it doesn't matter one way or the other. It definitely does. Because I think um, if we see that laid out in that direction, then it does give an indication that God is punishing those that are on this earth. Not only those who did not choose Him. But, and those, it's not just seems like it. It is stated this is divine punishment. It's divine retribution. Yeah. Covenant curses. But if you look at it another way, you know, like my sister was saying over there, that if you look back at the, uh, you know, Moses' time, there are... There, when we go through sufferings in this world, that can bring a refining of gold in our lives. It can, it can actually bring us to a decision of something we didn't see before. Um, you know, there's many texts throughout the scriptures that give an indication that when we go through that, that pain and suffering from the awareness of really what sin has done in my life or, or how it has hurt others that are around us, that that can actually um, help redirect the path, pathways in my mind and help me being drawn closer to God. Um, so I think that those plagues that are laid out there, if that has an opportunity to wake somebody up through the process, where like some of the old, in, in the olden days with, um, during Moses' time, where it would draw them to say, we want to serve after your God type of mindset, then, you know, that, that is the last, I think it's one of God's last ditch efforts to make that final call mm. You know, I'm coming. I, I really want you to come. Is there any way you can see this? I was raised in a Baptist church. And Revelation is scary. But from, from my understanding, when Jesus returns, those who are just will be just and those who are unjust will stay unjust. So I'm, I'm thinking that that would be the time that the probation is closed. When Jesus comes back, maybe... The stuff in Revelation is going to happen or has happened or is happening. But a choice after, after Jesus, after God sends Jesus back, decisions aren't to be made anymore because Jesus made a decision. When he comes back, whatever state you're in, that's where you're going to remain. Those who have maybe passed away before then, whatever state they're in, that's what state they're going to be raised up to. Russell? Isn't it the plague of the, the sun scorching the earth where the, it says people gnaw their tongues in agony and yet they don't, they still don't repent? Mm -hmm. right. This is, 
My understanding is that God God continues to provide evidence, and He needs He needs evidence for the people who are saved. When people who are saved end up in heaven, and they start looking around for loved ones, and why why isn't mother here? Why isn't my my daughter here? Why isn't my brother here? Why my best friend? Why isn't he here? So that's kind of that revealing aspect that we were talking about. Revelation, exactly. It's more is more evidence. God can, yeah. well, look, these are the evidences finally given to him at the, the very end of, of human time on this earth. And they still they they were so settled into the lie that um, they refused to believe. And he'll still provide evidence, as 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 mentioned earlier, when the the, the heavenly city comes down to the earth and the doors are open. The people still refuse to come in. Even after a thousand years, there may be some of some in heaven. See, if, if only my son could could see this, he would he would gladly join in. And they don't. We have a lot of precedents in the Bible of probation closing. Yes. We've got when the people were carried away into Babylon. That was a kind of closing probation for the Jews. We have when the gospel went from the Jews, when it departed from the Jews at the stoning of Stephen. These were all kinds of a closing probation, but. I won't, don't want to talk too long, so I'm thinking about how God presented the truth to individuals. And we could take the example of Caiaphas. I think he's the perfect example of someone who knew the ministry of Jesus better than anyone else. He had his spies with Jesus for three and a half years. He, he knew everything. That's a good point. More than the disciples. And God kept revealing himself. He had an opportunity at the trial of Jesus to see Jesus' demeanor. And then, on the day of the resurrection... A hundred Roman soldiers burst into his bedroom, wake him up and say, we have seen the risen Jesus. That's overwhelming evidence. But he was already set in what he was going to believe, and he refused that evidence. But that evidence was so clear. It was like God gave him one more chance. We're going to move on to verse 7, or looking at verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. How can this be read as anything other than coming from the hand of God? Here I want to point out the picture from the remedy. I don't know, uh, maybe if you've got it on your devices or uh, bricks and mortar version of it. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to review some of the uh, descriptions of the seven bowls and just see if you're drawn to this like I am. Uh, By each each verse, Chapter 15, verse 7, the seven gold bowls filled with the heartbreaking disengagement of God, who is the source of all life. The gold bowls are symbolic of God's stepwise release of those who would choose to be separate from him. Then in verse 8, the final seven-step release of God's restraint. Chapter 16, verse 1, the seven bowls of God's heartbreaking disengagement upon the earth. Verse 2, symbolizing God's love, granting people their final choice of rejecting him and allowing them to reap the consequences of their choice by no longer shielding them from his, with his protective hand. Verses, chapter 16, verses 3, 4, 8, and 10 for the subsequent uh, plagues, symbolizing the withdrawing of God's protective and life-sustaining present from the earth. 
verse 12, symbolizing the withdrawing of God's forces of righteousness. And lastly, in verse 17, symbolizing God's restraining and protective presence being completely removed from the earth. And when you read Revelation and you read that, that repeat, that repetition, it's like it's getting bad. No, okay, okay, okay. I can breathe and I can take the next one. And then because it resets your mind for um, why and the purpose or maybe giving us more insight as to why things are happening the way they are. Uh, chapter, I'm sorry, in Sunday, the first paragraph says, people have already made their choice either for God or for Babylon. Before Christ comes, however, the destructive winds of Satan's fury that have been restrained are unleashed, followed by the seven last plagues. Can we review that imagery involved in uh, the four angels releasing the winds of strife? This is found in Revelation 7, verses 1 through 3. If someone would read verse 1, Revelation 7, verse 1. Standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So what are the four angels doing? holding back the winds of strife, the forces of evil, satanic agencies, and thus their power to harm the earth is by letting go their hold, just like God let Satan loose in the book of Job. Ellen White supports these views, and I'll include these quotes. I think I'll skip over reading them right now. And in fact, I was, the content of her Sunday draws the uh, analogy with, of the seven plagues with the ten plagues in Egypt. And I'd like to skip over that unless somebody has a problem with that, because that comparison to me is a weak analogy. It's vaguely repetitive and incomplete alignment between the seven last plagues and the ten plagues upon Egypt. And as secondly, as I understand them, the plagues of Egypt were delivered at God's hand, whereas the seven last plagues were not. Later, I'd like to demonstrate the comparison of the last plagues with the trumpets, uh, the trumpet sequence, and then ask yourself, as I did, why would the quarterly not be making that more obvious correlation or comparison instead looking at um, Egypt? I think that might have something to do with the, uh, the forces behind the plagues. Continue on Sunday's lesson, paragraph 2. We touched on this before. The seven last plagues are referred to as the last plagues because they come at the end, of the very end of Earth's history, and maybe to contrast to the first plagues and the trumpets and the seals. Last in that, with them, God's wrath, his letting go, is complete. Uh, the remedy in uh, chapter 15, verse 2 says, Last, because when these are released, God will have ceased all intercession on Earth. The third paragraph uh, she shared with me her definition of something that I'm lifting from, from the quarterly that states, Divine wrath is God's righteous judgment on the choices people have made. And would you share your translation? I said, God lets go of those who have rejected him, leaving them to the consequences of their own choices. His righteous judgment is simply an accurate diagnosis. It's easy when I read the Sabbath school quarterly, it's so easy to go, like, you just get in this, yeah, okay. Uh, it, it's 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 so easy to go back into that you know the groove that says yes it, 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 that reaffirms maybe what we've been taught or what seems to be the predominant way of of viewing God's wrath. All the more reason to flood our minds with this picture of God. On Monday, uh, I'm going to share that I'm a member at the library Sabbath school class at the big church, and I taught the week of the trumpets. 
to less than grand <laughs> fanfare. <laughs> I dissented with the quarterly's position that the trumpet plagues were, again, divine judgments of retribution, punitive judgments, another quote, and or covenant curses, as described by its authors. Instead, I hold that the plagues were delivered by the adversary. They have his, his fingerprints all over them. And while the vast majority of Christianity agrees with the Sabbath school author's conclusions, I'm holding out. Based on what I know to be true about God, he, can't, he just cannot be saying all along, all I want from you is your love and trust, only to, in the end, say, or I'm going to have to kill you. Um, if I can, I'd like to just review... You know, go through the trumpets and the bowls, uh, just to kind of impress upon you how obviously this comparison was, but this was not brought out in the Sabbath School Quarterly. The trumpets, the first one, hail, fire, and blood fall on the earth. Bowls, the bowls are poured out on the earth. Second, a blazing mountain falls into the sea. One third of the sea becomes blood, and a third of the sea creatures die. The bowls, the bowl is poured out on the seas. The seas become blood, and every living, every living thing in them dies. Third, a blazing star falls on a third of the rivers and fountains of water. The bowl is poured on rivers and fountains of water. Fourth, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck, resulting in darkness. The bowl is poured out on the sun, resulting in fierce heat. Fifth, the shaft of the bottom, bottomless pit is opened. Sun and air are darkened with smoke. Locusts appear to torture people. The bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast, plunging it into darkness. People bite their tongues in severe pain. Sixth, the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates are you released. Cavalry numbering 200 million kills a third of humanity. The bowl is poured on the great river of Euphrates. Kings of the world assemble for battle on the great day of, the, of God the Almighty in a place called Armageddon. Lastly, the, se the seventh trumpet, loud voices in heaven, announce the coming of the kingdom of God in Christ. The bowl is poured into the air. A loud voice from the throne announces, It is done. It would seem that the correlation between these two can hardly have happened by accident. My understanding from theologians' perspective, this is called recapitulation. Uh, we shared uh, some discussion of this before. Recapitulation. Revelation is being consistent with itself, from within the text itself. Going back to proviso number one about when things are symbolic, we, you know, we look for definitions from within the text. This is more easily, see more easily seen on a rereading, and this stressing this idea of Letting this review, and I like the audio version, I've been trying to do that while we're studying Revelation, is rereading Revelation. It takes like an hour to go through it, um, and just each time you see uh, correlations that, or things pop out that you might not have gotten on a first time through. But ultimately, I want you to do your own thinking and come to your own conclusions. Again, I ask, can you imagine why the quarterly's authors might not have drawn attention to these comparisons? Again, if you hold that, the, the, that God is performing acts of divine retribution, covenant curses, and punitive judgment, you might not, uh, you know, it would be hard to uh, uh, establish that because I, as I understand it, the plagues 
the authors are much more comfortable with the idea that this is the adversary working. The, but, but certainly for the trumpet plagues, that's, that, those are at God's hand. Re, uh, conclusions, the bowls recapitulate the trumpets, only they are worse. The identity of the acting subject is in the foreground in the trumpet cycle and carries over into the bowl cycle. In the sixth trumpet, Satan is not just barely active, he is not just acted upon, he is instead acting with all the stops pulled. This goes back to this, now going back to the sixth trumpet and the sixth plague, both bringing up the Euphrates River. Um, does anybody, before I move on, does anybody have anything to say about kind of the overview? I mean, this is that's the full extent that we're going to go into the plagues specifically, other than the last uh, kind of looking at the sixth Tuesday's lesson describes the uh, drying up of the Euphrates River. And at this point, I want to have someone pull up Revelation 16, 12 in the remedy and looking at it in contrast, if somebody can get one of the more standard translations, Revelation 16, 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather from them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I, came like a th- I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Donna? The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, symbolizing the withdrawing of God's forces of righteousness as a shield against the kings from the east, symbolic of the correcting power, uh, sorry, corrupting powers of mysticism. I saw three spirits whose minds had not been cleansed of the lies about God. They looked like frogs, catching their prey with their lying tongues. They came telling the lies of mysticism and spiritualism from the dragon, the lies of coercion and force from the beast, and the lies of pagan appeasement, theology from the false prophet. These are the spiritual movements of fallen angels, demons who perform miracles and go to the rulers of the world to unite them in war against the truth about God and his methods of love on the great day of God Almighty. Understand this. To the unhealed, my coming will be unexpected, like that of a thief. But the healed, who have guarded their hearts and kept their characters pure, will be happy at my coming and will not be ashamed by the exposure of an unhealed character. From the demonic forces united the nations together in their opposition to God and his methods of love, bringing them to what is known in Hebrew as Armageddon, or the Mount of Assembly, the mountain where God rules. So... I wanted to point this out because there are three points I want to bring in the last few minutes that we have. It's interesting, the quarterly, and I would say most of the resources that I found, say that the drawing up of the Euphrates results in the collapse of Babylon in the end time. 
It has to do with Darius, the king of Cyrus. Did you guys read about this at all? You can't ignore the echoes of the literal drying up, the, 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 the diverting of the river Euphrates when the Medes and Persians uh, marched into Babylon underneath uh, on a dry riverbed. The Babylonians were celebrating, they were drinking wine out of the holy vessels of, of the, uh, the sanctuary, worshiping the gods of silver and the gods of gold and the gods of wine. And the writing on the handwriting on the wall, where the Daniel was caught, it was brought in to interpret it. It means a literal falling of Babylon in Daniel's time, and the metaphoric falling of Babylon millennia later. But it was for a good cause, right? Because wasn't wasn't it the king Cyrus? That guy came in, and he was like a good guy. He let them go back home. He let the that was the, the, yeah, the eventual the, the king King Darius, but. Released the first decree for uh, the Israelites to be returned to Jerusalem, and, uh, and King Cyrus uh, signed the third. Darius was a Mede, and Cyrus was a Persian. Yeah, it says here, in the same way, the symbolic drawing up of the Euphrates prepares the way for the coming of the kings of the east to provide deliverance to God's end-time people. The kings from the east, in Revelation 16:12 are Christ and his army of heavenly angels. At the second coming, Jesus will appeal, appear with his angelic hosts, clothed in fine linen, and wh- linen, white and clean, which is the dress of sinless angels, accompanied by the host of heaven, Christ will, as Revelation 17 shows, overcome satanic forces that oppress his people. This final complex conflict against Christ and his people, leading to the second coming, is known as the Battle of Armageddon. But... And I just wanted to draw the contrast here. And this is probably why I'm less focusing on particular symbols and exactly what they mean, because uh, I think Tim has the kings of the East symbolic of the corrupting powers of mysticism. So that was not in the children's, you know, best interest. So once again, we study, we, uh, we go through our differential diagnosis, and we end up with what we um, hold is consistent, more consistent with our big picture. Someone have their hand up over here? Um, what is the role of these three unclean spirits in the preparation for the battle of Armageddon? How are they a satanic, this isn't the question in the quarterly, how are they a satanic counterfeit of the three angels' message? That in 25 words or less, no. (laughs) I have to say again, going back to the memorizing, uh, having memorized the beasts and the symbols and what they mean, I'm less comfortable with that. Again, um, I'll tell you what I'm really uncomfortable with is the quarterly's definition of or uh, understanding of the symbolism as the dragon meaning paganism and spiritualism, the sea beast. It's like I just can't believe at this date and time that they still have written Roman Catholicism in the quarterly. And the third being the false pro- prophet, that being apostate Protestantism, or um, I think uh, Tim describes it, the, those who have bought the lies of pagan appeasement theology as being the false prophet. Um, I mean, that's just enough to to revel in right there, just to say another way of looking at things to where, um, I hope my parents aren't watching this, but uh, my dad, being a Roman Catholic, has started to take my mom to church. My dad's 89, my mother's 86, and they pretty much do everything together. And as a result, my dad is coming to church, and it's a little dicey in a little church in upstate New York, or and I, I just outside of New York City, but a tiny church is very likely to have these long-held SDA beliefs. And so 
I like I'm saying, Dad, uh, did you want to bring the crossword puzzle? Or um, maybe you want to just sit in the office or something during Sabbath school. But I just love this perspective of saying, what is it about, what is it that they're discussing? Indeed, it's, I mean, Russell, I think you have a way of putting this where it's discuss, it's describing the use of force and coercion to implement God's ways. That is the, the, that is the entity that's being referred to. Sadly, Adventism has, has mistaken, has melded papal Rome with Catholicism. And the, the papal, papal system, the papal, papal system, is is what is referred to here as, as being you know, beastly. But in particular, it's the use of power yeah, that it has to coerce and to force. It's easy, I think, for for us as Adventists to try to to, to do that to, to say, well, it's it's that. And I want to say, in particular, our church right now is actually using the messages of the second and third frogs here. They're using force and coercion to have everybody comply with what mm. they're believing, which is often a pagan concept of God. So that's why I think they're still doing this. They're, they're writing it out because it's like, it's them. It's not us, it's them. And we have to be really careful about that. And I think you mentioned that in one of your comments well, I think it was in, there was a thought question at the end. In what ways have you learned how risky it is to place your trust in humans and in human institutions, any institution, including ours? How did you write that there? Yeah, Tuesday. I said it was an interesting question for isn't our church a human institution? And I agree that our trust should be in God and not in individual people or in the institutions people create and or maintain. Yeah. Lastly, just to touch on Armageddon, because we uh, are out of time, but uh, the quarterly, and I think rightly says, the Mount of Megiddo, um, this is on Thursday's lesson, is an apparent allusion to Mount Carmel that towers above the valley in which the city, the ancient city of Megiddo was located. Mount Carmel was the site of one of the greatest clashes in Israel's history between God's true prophet Elijah and the false prophets of Baal. And it describes a showdown and how how things were meted out. But I guess the point I want to make that Armageddon is not a military battle among nations to be fought somewhere in the Middle East, but a global spiritual contest in which Christ decisively confronts the forces of darkness. The outcome will be that like that at Carmel, but on a worldwide scale, with God's triumph over the forces of dark, darkness. Armageddon will not be some kind of military battle either in the Middle East or elsewhere on the earth. This is reiterating that. It will be a spiritual battle over who is telling the truth and whom we can trust. The weapon will be truth versus falsehood, love versus selfishness. With that, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us together on your Sabbath day. We pray for more insights into all that you have given us to, you've revealed so much of everything that you, you want us to be in your heart and in your mind and in every way like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.